It is Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 351. I'm ready for another vacation. My name is Caleb Haig. <laughs> and I haven't really taken one yet. I'm Rob Vanhoff. Yeah, man, you gotta you gotta get out, you gotta jump on the uh, vacation, the vacation train, man. I wonder if my kids are watching right now. Hi kids. Hi Levi. My wife Hi, said ben. That, my, my wife said that uh Hi Kaylee. My 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 youngest loves it when uh, when she turns the show on. So anyway, all right. Um, yeah, we got a lot going on. Let's see here. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah, the baseline. The baseline in that, uh, that's, uh, that's a good one. Hey, by the way, uh, and actually, let's not, I won't tell you what it reminds me of. We'll ask next week. But in our song, in our opener song, there's a baseline. Listen carefully next week. And I want people to tell me what they think the baseline is. Because, um, yeah. Well, I've mentioned it before, what I thought it was. Okay, well, we'll do it next week. Okay. We'll do it next week. The chat room can chime in next week. Um, okay. Uh, we have new producers for the summer credit, and here they are. Nice. Uh, so thank you very much to all of our producers. And actually, I just thought about this. The other thing that we're going to do is for those who support this show, um, since we don't we don't upload a new video to Messiah Matters more every week, and uh, one of the things that I'm going to do is I'm going to actually put everyone's name on uh on end credits. And so hopefully by next week, all of our supporters will also be uh, listed on end, end credits uh, every show. That's one of the things I want to do. Okay. A uh, lot going on in the world today, and we're not going to talk about a lot of this, but uh, I, I did want to just mention, uh, I've been watching video, actually all the guys in the, in the office have been, except for Rob, Rob has no clue about this. All the guys in the office have been watching uh, a video on, uh, some of the things that have been going on. So I, I got to give background to this first before we can talk about um, what this actually is. Rob has no clue about this. Hang on just a sec. I'm actually trying to fix Rob's here. Uh, Rob's video. Okay. Um, Rob has no clue about this, so it'll be interesting. Like to a lot of things, I don't like have a lot a clue. of things. So uh, we're gonna t- we're, we'll, we'll just we'll just dive into this water for just a second. Okay. So. As many people know, the Southern Baptist Convention a long time a long time ago, maybe what three four weeks ago, they uh, they voted for a new president. J D Greer was the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and there was a huge hubbub of who was going to be the new president. And the reason why is because there was four candidates. I'm talking fast because I want to just kind of get through this history. The four candidates, two of them leaned towards the a very conservative worldview, whereas uh, two of them leaned more towards a, a liberal worldview, especially one of them leaned very heavy heavy towards a liberal worldview. The person who leaned the most towards a liberal worldview was a guy named Ed Litton. He, have, he actually got elected as the Southern Baptist Convention president. This was, uh, for those who watch this show, you're probably wondering why in the world would I care about this? I, I think actually believers in the United States, at least, should care about this. And the reason why is because the Southern Baptist Convention currently is the largest conservative denomination in the U.S. today. They, uh, they boast something outrageous like, I forget how many members. It's it's a lot. It's like thirty thousand members or something like that. There's a ton of Southern Baptist people that hold to this Southern Baptist Convention. I am not one of them, by the way. Anyway, with all of that said, Ed Litton gets uh, elected as the Southern Baptist Convention. As soon as he gets elected, all of a sudden it comes out that he's plagiarized some uh, sermons, and this is the new like scandal within the 
the Christian conservative world is that Ed Litton, the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention, has plagiarized a sermon. And somebody did the great work of going and showing that the former president, J.D. Greer, had preached these sermons. And then they, 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 they clip Greer and then uh, he'll say something and then they clip Ed Litton saying verbatim what Greer had said. And so this comes out, and uh, it's kind of a big thing, and, and there's silence for a few minutes, and during that silence, somebody else goes on to Ed Litton's church, church's website, realizes that there is some major heresy on the Trinity doctrine within their faith statement. Well, it come to find out, they had not written their faith statement. They literally copied and pasted from another church. And so why is this... Why is this church who is pastored by the president of the Southern Baptist Convention not writing their own faith statements? Okay, all of this keeps going down the line. <clears throat> Come to find out, Ed Litton has now, people have found that he's plagiarized over 15 sermons and the list just keeps growing and growing and growing, including one of Tim Keller's sermons, so on and so forth. Okay, so now to the article or the video that I'm now currently watching. What's come out recently is that there is a group of what, what I would call liberals uh, that have started a, a research and uh, writing group for pastors of megachurches. It's called the Docent Group. And the Docent Group has helped people like Greer and Lytton and um, does everybody remember Mark Driscoll and Timothy Keller and uh, Matt Chandler? And so, I mean, the list of major pastor names is huge at this point, okay? And basically what these guys do is they help do research and they do research and essentially give help in sermons. And so the question that has been raised is whether or not it is legitimate for a pastor to have a group of people, in this case it's bad because these people are extremely liberal and put and they're implanting liberal uh, t teaching into these pastor's sermons. But the real question that I would have for people is, do you think it's ethical that a preacher use a group like this to help them shape and do research for their sermons? What do you think, Rob? And I'll, well, it I'll, sounds, it reminds me of like politicians, like let's say a pre president of the United States who doesn't write his own speeches, like someone else writes it. And then he, he's in front of the camera and everybody looks to him because he's the symbol, right? He's the, the, the symbolic figure or the symbolic head. But the, the things he speaks are maybe generally things he would give a stamp of approval to, but he doesn't sit there and, you know, come up with his own material. Um, that, that's what it reminds me of. But I, I'm really outside of these streams that you guys are talking about. So okay. uh, it sounds, I just tell you, it sounds strange to me. Okay. So two, like, I, yeah, it, it two, sounds strange. Two things on this. First of all, um, Lee, Lee in the, in the chat room says, doesn't Greer halfway affirm homosexuality. And, and what he's referring to is there was a certain, the sermon that, that Lytton ripped off is on Romans one and what they say in this, and this was a huge hubbub on Twitter. And what they say in this, this is that God whispers about sexual sin but screams about uh, like social class or something. I forget what the, what he screams about. Um, and so and so people just 
I mean, uh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, I remember you mentioned this before. Wow. So they both used that same they phrase. Both, yeah, they both used the exact same phrase, and, and it came from <laughs> neither one of them. It came from a third party that is feeding them. That is unknown. To be this particular to, to, point. To, to be uh, fair, that that particular point is unknown. Okay. Here, here's my here's okay. But let, other, but what you're saying is that there are other things that have been fed to both of them. The docent group has been so the docent group will look at what denomination you're a part of, understand what theology you come from, <laughs> and, and then and then and then and then do surveys in your church. Yeah, they will do surveys in your church to try to understand who the people are who are listening. And then they will write content and give analogies and background to text who uh, that will better serve your your congregants. Okay, oh so my. so wow. And, and uh, Mr. C says the SBC is going to implode. I think that the SBC is about to have a a huge break, and I think it's going to be about a fifty fifty break. And um, I think that this is actually a good thing. Because I think that the SBC is fighting amongst itself between liberals and conservatives. And I think the conservatives need to stand up and need to push against the liberal agenda. With that said, the problem that I have with the docent group, here we go. And this goes for everyone out there. This has nothing to do with the SBC. If you feel that you are called to the pastorate, if you feel like you're called to the pulpit, there's a reason you're called to that. It is because... If you're truly called, the Holy Spirit is going to use you to exp- to exposit the scriptures, to preach to the people in the in the uh, in the seats in the pews, and to uh, lead people in the way that, that God wants them to be led spiritually. Now, a pastor should know know his own people, and a pastor should know his flock. And ultimately, the pastor is in charge of turning those people to the ultimate shepherd. And so the uh, the point is, is that if you are u- using one of, if you're using other people to write your sermons, basically what you're doing is you're entering the pulpit without the Holy Spirit. You're relying on other people. It's not your... Well, especially like when you're talking about <clears throat> a group that, will modify according to your statement of faith. That is, that's like algorithm. That's like a computer, like, you know, programming kind of thing. It's not it, 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 like custom. Now, here, now hearing these guys talk. That hearing- would be like this. That would be like this, just to use the analogy of politics again. Let's say you had, <laughs> let's say you found out that Trump and Biden both were getting their speech material from the same person or the same group that just modifies it based on that wouldn't what surprise political me. Part, that actually, political, that would that actually wouldn't surprise me because because that's politics. Well, but well, okay, so that's the we're, same we're, thing. But we're, no, is, it's not the same thing, and the reason why is because we're talking about the holy the, the, no, the holy I spirit. Mean, they're treating it like politics. Right. They are that's treating it. I mean. Yes, it, they are treating I, it. Like I politics. agree. That's not that's not born of the Holy Spirit. That's not born of your prayer for your people that you're in touch with that uh, you're communicating the word of God to. Oh my. After the show, I'll put a link to this uh, amazing video um on on the docent group uh done by it's, it's fantastic. But in that video, which I will link in in the description, 
in that video, this uh, this guy plays clips of different pastors uh, endorsing the docent group. Okay, and one of them is uh, Matt Chandler, and Matt Chandler has had some really good stuff. I've I've listened to Matt before. And in it, he says, you know, uh, they don't write my sermons for me, but they help me in my preparation. You know, I still exposit the word and I'm still putting together my sermons, but um, they help me with the historical background of stuff and, and stuff that I'd never be able to research. And 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 uh, that's really how I use them. Well, and the, the guy making the video says this is the Trojan horse. In other words, this is how they get in. I actually think that's the biggest problem. And the reason why is because. One of the missteps that we've had within the church today is, is, a, uh, is a misunderstanding of the historical background of what's going on. In other words, the reason that so many churches are getting certain parts of, of theology wrong is because they are not understanding the historical background of the, of the word itself. And so when you outsource that to a bunch of liberals— what do you think you're going to get? You're not, I mean, people are still going to study the history and the background of stuff according to their own worldview. We all kind of put it into, uh, we all kind of put it, you know, we, we go to the scholars that we trust, we go to the, the people that we trust. Now, sometimes history is history. But one of the reasons that so many uh, th- theologians have gotten, I think, certain parts of the scriptures wrong is because they have not understood it within its historical context. And I think that there is a push within the the conservative church today, at least, uh, to go back to uh, a historical grammatical interpretation. But when you're outsourcing your historical uh, research to a liberal group, I have serious doubts that you're going to so get... So how, how do we know they're a liberal group? I mean, who, who are the people involved? And that's exactly what the... I mean, the guy who uh, did the video that I've been watching... That video is like an hour long. And so I'll just, I mean, and that's what he, that's the question that he's answering. Who's behind the docent group and who's writing for the docent group? And what his research has, has brought him to believe is that all of these guys are liberal, very liberal. Uh, you know, people who are co-authoring books with political advisors. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh Anyway, interesting, interesting. Okay, let's move on to things. So the that, docent group itself does not have a statement of faith. Oh, I don't think so. Why would they do that? They that way they would they would pigeon themselves they would pigeonhole themselves into a denomination. They don't want to do that. Hmm. Then they wouldn't okay. be able to write for the Catholics or the Mormons or I mean. <laughs> oh, they don't write for Catholics and Mormons, do they? I think they got a Catholic on staff. I could be wrong. I could okay, be wrong well, about that. Don't, don't, don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Don't, don't uh, quote me on that. Oh, and uh, and uh, Mike just posted the video that I've been uh, referencing in the chat room. So anyone who's in the chat room, you can check that video out. Put it in your watch later. Uh, yeah. Okay. If but here's ultimately here's the point. If you are a pastor and you think that uh, and you're the teaching pastor and you think that your job has become so big at the church that uh, that you don't have time to prepare your sermons anymore, then maybe you haven't been called to the pastorate. Maybe you've been called to uh, administration instead. So I mean, the point is, is that part of like. Rob says this a lot. We need to stay in our lanes. If the Lord has called has called us to preach, then preach we shall. And that entails study. That entails doing our own work. That entails not ripping off other people's sermons. 
we that that means that the Lord has something that He wants us to say that He is going to help us with. And if we're not if we're not going to be able to do that, then get out of the pastorate. Or hire other people that can do the administrative that, that work. The rationale is going to be something about the pastor being burdened with, like you're saying, admin or like just too much, too much stuff. So there, which will force a local community to prioritize. So the question is, as a local church lost its way, as a local kind of uh, flock lost its way when this starts happening, when, when the pastor starts having to outsource exegesis and teaching of the word because of other things are getting in the way of him being able to do that. Now, then is, is that, is that a, uh, is that what, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a red flag, you know, is that like a, you know, check engine light coming on. Yes. You know, and, and, and I see, you know, in the chat room, I understand the sentiment and, and this is true to an extent, you know, uh, there is no zeal for the word. There's only zeal for content and they need to have the church bills paid. Okay. I understand. I understand that, that sentiment. However, uh, we need to be fair where, where the fairness is due. There are some wonderful pastors out there even in the SBC, in the Southern Baptist, we should say, especially in the SBC, since the SBC is what we're focusing on right now. You know, Tom Buck, and I don't know if Peters is Justin Peters, uh, uh, part of the SBC, I don't know. But anyway, you got people who are legit pastors who are honestly pastoring their flock and desperately trying to keep their people, uh, you know, uh, on, on the foundation of the word. So I, I, I agree that many pastors and many churches today have lost sight of what's going on and what they're supposed to be doing. Too many people are worried about the bills. Too many people are worried about the building, so on and so forth. But we got numbers of churches here in, in, in my town alone where there, you know somebody asked me for a recommendation the other day for a, a reformed church in Tacoma. They, they said it tongue in cheek because they thought I was going to recommend my church. And I wrote back and said, well, you need to know that my church meets on Saturday. We, we celebrate the Seventh-day Sabbath and the festivals. And so if your friends who they were looking for a church for, I said, if your friend is not is looking for a traditional Sunday church, then here are three churches that you could look at. However, if they don't, you know, if they want to come on Saturday, then here's our church. So, I mean, the fact that I have three churches, you know, at, at ready with good pastoring, with good eldership teams that truly love God and are truly founded on the word, I mean... We can't just throw all churches under the bus. But I agree with what, I mean, I understand the sentiment and I agree. Okay, let's move on. Let's uh, let's move to something a little bit more, I don't know, interesting. Stephen wrote in several weeks ago and we answered, he had six points to a question. We answered the first one and we are going to try to get to some of the other six. So he's talking about the Mishnah. And for those who do not know, the Mishnah is considered the oral law within Judaism. And many uh, people within the Torah movement, within Messianic Judaism, within uh, the Hebrew Roots movement, have wanted to study the Mishnah. Uh, and I, I don't think that studying the Mishnah is necess- necessary or even necessarily good unless it is to do historical research for what might be going on in a specific time. In other words, I do not think that the um, Talmud or the Mishnah actually helps us exposit the word necessarily. 
outside of giving historical background to what certain groups believed at a time. Does that make sense? Do you agree with that, Rob? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so with that said... Well, the, problem, the problem is if someone says, oh, this is in the Babylonian Talmud, and therefore it must have been true in Jesus' day, right? So things have to be kept in their proper timeline as well as, you know, what the content of the... Or that Discussions. Jesus studied under Gamaliel, or that Jesus studied under Hillel. Yeah, yeah. My, Mike sent that video the other day of Messianic rabbi who said that that Jesus studied with the top rabbis of the day, or some of the top. Yeah, yeah, of course. Or something. Uh, anyway, the the nonsense just keeps keeps getting flung. Anyway, okay. So Stephen writes in. Stephen's great. I've, some of the best conversations I've had in a long time with Stephen. Anyway, Stephen writes in. He says. If the, Mishnah, uh, if the Mishnah is now written down and codified, how can it be oral? Right. So uh, this is the first, this is actually the second question, but this is the first question that we're going to, um, to, to, to address. Um, so the idea of oral Torah is something that obviously is transmitted orally and not written down. And so uh, there's actually an entire uh, there, there's an entire history to this. Rob, would you like to tell that? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the rabbinic texts themselves. I think it's in the Tosefta to Ediot, where it says it addresses this problem. If the Mishnah was oral, why why is it written down? And the 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 idea was that after the temple was destroyed, uh, the rabbis were um, together, you know, and trying to keep it oral. And at some point, they they realized it's going to disappear. They're, this is the narration of the. Uh, in yeah, the this is how rabbis. they tell. This is how they tell the history. Yeah, they tell the story, and so that it says, "Let us begin with Hillel and Shammai, and we'll start cap. We'll start um, gathering and and uh, capturing it." However, even into the Middle Ages, you have two different stories about whether. The Mishnah, at what point was it written down? Some say Judah the Prince or Yehuda Hanasi um, wrote, actually physically wrote it down, the Mishnah. Uh, some say, no, he he, he edited, it, edited it orally and then taught it by repeating it over and over again. And so even within the rabbinic world, by the year like nine or 900 or 1,000, you have two different you know, two divergent reports on that, okay. but clearly, but clearly, by the Middle Ages, um, it's written uh, because, like, for example, when Rashi writes a commentary on the on the Babylonian Talmud, he's writing a commentary on a written text. He's received it as a written document, not as oral tradition. Okay, so I, it, I've I've received much flack from this. For those who don't remember, probably two hundred shows ago, we talked a little bit about this. And the fact is, is that I actually don't buy it. Personally, I don't buy it. I think that, that within the Mishnah, I think that there are some things that go all the way back to the first century. For instance, uh, things like cleanliness, okay? Or um, I'm not sure about things like a Sabbath day journey. I think that, that was actually perhaps just uh, a amount of time, like uh, a known measurement. I don't think there was necessarily laws around that. That's neither here nor there. But I think that there are certain things that we see within uh, the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament, that did carry over into the Mishnah. However, I think that predominantly the, the Mishnah as it was written down, whenever it was written down, 
I think predominantly the, the Mishnah was a an attempt to retain the Judaism that was alive at that time. So we're talking 350 or later. And to specialize it. And to specialize it and to respond to Christianity. Right. A specialize it in a way that makes it, you're either in or, or you're, you're out. out. Right. Yeah. And and they, they wanted to really draw a clear line to say who we are and who we're not. And I think that, that for that reason, I think that the Mishnah was literally created, and I and I mean that literally, created. I don't know if there was a council. I've, I've pondered that many times, whether or not, like Christianity, they had some kind of a council, or whether or not a, you know multiple rabbis got together and said, hey, we, what do we do yeah. here? Well, uh, Dan, there's a famous Daniel Boyarin article called A Tale of Two Synods, and he talks about how at the same time in about the 5th century, 4th, 5th century, you have the emergence of a story in Christianity about the Council of Nicaea that emerges at the same time you have a story in the rabbinic world of the Council of Yavne. Right. And how both you have emergence of institutions that have a story of where they came from and some famous council in the past that helped them sort out big issues. And uh, I think it's, you know, I think it's a helpful way to look at it. A lot of it, we, we just don't know, you know, because we're, we're dealing with late manuscripts. When it comes to rabbinic material, as you know, Caleb. 1100, yeah. Yeah, our earliest, yeah, Mishnah is, you know, a thousand years old, you know. And so the claims to, I think we have fragments from the Kyrgyzza that could be 100 or two years earlier than that. But still, we're far removed from the the characters portrayed in the text themselves. Uh, uh, my my point here, and, and uh, I literally got, I don't know if I'd call it hate mail, but very close to hate mail on the idea that the mission was created. Why do you hate? <laughs> the, the idea that the mission was. La, 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 la. Oh, yeah. I know. Oh, and we forgot, <laughs> we forgot a lot of different things, didn't we? Um, but anyway, I, I literally got close to hate mail on the idea that the mission was created and that it possibly was created by a council. Uh, but I, I honestly and genuinely do not believe that there was anything that you could even remotely consider an oral law like we have the Mishnah in the first the standard, century. The standard idea in, in rabbinic ac in the academic world is that there probably was a Jew, Judah the prince. He, uh, you know, went through stuff that he had learned through like the five different disciples of Rabbi Akiva, basically and sorted them out and organized them in a certain way and then handed them down somehow. And then another layer comes and adds another opinion. I mean, it's, it's, it's not narrative, right? It's pretty dry. Right. It's very concise. It's full of code kind of language and it, and really English translations don't do it. You know, they, they can make it deceivingly, uh, Simple. I, I suggested one time, and I really did get hate mail for this. I think I was called an ignorant moron. Um, that uh, I suggested that Hillel and Shammai were not real people, but that they were uh, they were created figures that could carry ideas, kind of like uh, what's his uh, a trifle, right? Uh, 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 who who is it? Who the um, yeah 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 so, dialogue with trifle. dialogue with Tri trifle. Tri Trifo, yeah. Trifo. And, and Justin Martyr. Justin yeah. Martyr creates this fake person and then writes as if, you know, and I think that... A dialogue about I, I suggested that perhaps Hillel and Shammai were created by a council 
<clears throat> to basically say, well, we'll just say that this rabbi and this rabbi, they have the two differing opinions, even though it's really just these two groups within, right. the, within the council. And I mean, the, the mail that came in on that, I, I don't remember if that was when I got the death threat, but, the, but um, <laughs> the people were wow. not happy about that. Um, okay, let's, let's move on to, um, well, actually, before we do, let's just quickly say uh, that if you have not subscribed, please go ahead and subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please do us a favor and click the like button. It actually does help us. And we haven't heard our uh, jingle today. So before we move on to our second, uh, our second question from Stephen, let's listen to our phone jingle. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-465-3205. That's right, 253-465-3205. You can also shoot us an email, chagatorresource.com. It's chagatorresource.com. Everything that we uh, talk about on the show usually comes, uh, not everything, most of the things that we talk about come from your comments on our comment line or our email address. Okay, and since um, since Rob... It just uh, makes me so happy. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> that, that song makes me happy. Since Rob already... Uh, already referenced it i think that it is very much uh, in line that we should hear this as well why do you hate the rob and caleb show honestly i think they're vain stupid and incredibly self-centered Okay, let's move on to Stephen's second comment here. And uh, th- uh, by the way, this is not only ha- only half of the time are th- we really that way. This is not actually none of this was on the agenda. So so Rob That's didn't fine. Rob didn't even know that we had these questions. And so I, but we had such a hard time figuring out what we were going to talk about. And then I found this like right before we came on air, and I was like, oh yeah, we could do this again. Um, okay, anyway, so uh, question three from Stephen, which is actually only two on this episode. Wouldn't a more proper name for the Mishnah be Oral Traditions or Halakha? Well, Mishnah, Mishnah and the Aramaic Matnita means repeated tradition. It means something that is repeated. It's not, uh, or something that is taught and repeated, almost like curriculum or something like that. Uh, it's, uh, but whether the, the phrase Oral is from the, there is no word oral in right. Hebrew. It's Sheba Al-Peh. So Torah Sheba Al-Peh, which means Torah, which is in the mouth. Uh, and that is uh, in conjunction with Torah Sheba which means Torah, which is in writing. Right. So, um, and that's another thing that the idea of, a, of this oral Torah comes way later. Okay, and that's actually his next question. Number four is: Is new Mishnah still continuing to be revealed? No, no. Well, but that but that's a really good question. It is a really it, good question. It points us to differences in the the Jewish world today, and the one tension among even the ultra orthodox is uh, on the one side the conservative, if you would, who are there is no innovation. That any any new teaching is bad. That it all, and so what they end up doing is just reciting over and over what people in the past have said, right. and they feel safe. Right. And these are these are the people that you know they're gonna even their lifestyle is gonna reflect, even though they live in Jerusalem in the 21st century, 
they're going to be wearing clothes from, you know, 17th, 18th century Eastern Europe. Right. I mean, and, um, and then on the right or on the left, you're going to have people that are more that, that see value in tradition, but they're more open to new things. Okay. Hang on just a sec. Wait, wait, stop right there. And the reason why is because I think I would disagree with you just a little bit. And here's the reason why within the Hasidic movement. Okay. We see that a rabbi like a Zadik, a, a righteous person who is the head of the, of the uh, group, we see that their words are essentially taken as from God. In other words, when you have Schneerson, Schneerson died in what, 94? Mm-hmm. When you have Schneerson say something, and, and keep in mind that there's plenty of Zadik still alive today, but, uh, but when you have Schneerson say something, it's as if God says it himself. And this is how we have evangelism of the Chabad. To, like the Chabad right, are right. out evangelizing because he said, not the scriptures, but Schneerson said, you need to go out and, and, and evangelize. And so now this is like their mission. So in other words, I think that you, even though it's, yes, I agree with you that, that, that mission is not currently being written and added to the Mishnah. However, you, what you do have is you have uh, an idea that the rabbi's words are as being spoken as from God. And therefore, new no laws and new, and new halakha is being written or spoken by rabbis and communities today. Sure, sure. But, yeah. And that would be, you're right that that's in the Hasidic. That, uh, that is, I mean, the break in at the rise of, of the Hasidic movement is they were rejected by the Mitnagdim, which is like the Vilna Gaon, you know, the, what we call the Lithuanian uh, tradition. And th- those are going to be the people that are the super conservative. They did not like the new dancing, the new spontaneous prayer, you know, the idea. And so that, so that the, it, the it, Lithuanian tradition is we just study the Talmud. It's, it's intellectual rigor. There's no big emotional content because your job is to study the words of, of the Talmud and understand it. Whereas the Hasidic, Hasidic tradition generally is more, uh, is going to be more open to new and trying to bring newness. Now, here's the thing is that we can actually see the exact same thing happening in the Christian denominations, the exact same thing around the same time. At the time that the new Kabbalah is coming about in the 1700s and the Baal Shem Tov is teaching all these things, you have what's called the Quakers. And the Quakers were known because of their experiential uh, things, right? And even throughout history, even in the 19th century, you know, my grandpa and grandma, if you danced, oh, heavens. You know, you have this Baptist tradition that still holds on to the idea that no movies, no dancing, you know, no, that's out. Whereas the new Baptists, these heretics are dancing and going to movies all over the why, place. Why, why do why do why do Baptists want to prevent, uh, you know, teenagers from kissing? It might lead to dancing or something like that. It's a, it's a, it was I, I might I think I butchered the joke, but the idea the punchline was it it might lead, lead to, to dancing. dancing. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you see, you kind of see the same thing going going on. Is that within Judaism they want to retain this old lifestyle? And but, the, but the idea that that's true. But in the in the Jewish tradition, the divide is is uh, confidence in man's ability to to touch the things of God versus man's total uh, inability. And so the the Lithuanian tradition is man man is a sorrowful 
pitiful creature. And the best he can do is to afflict himself and study the holy words of Torah, which is not the Torah of Moses. It's, it means right. the, the Talmud. Whereas the Hasidic group are like, no, we can emotionally reach to the heavens and, and, and experience God and, um, and are much more positive about like human potential. And so the division is comes down to what does it mean even to be human is the ver- newness versus oldness. Um, uh, man as as bound and limited and broken versus man being strong and able. I think that we should try to get to uh, to Stephen's last question. Okay, okay. Because uh, this, I think, is where oh, he's... One last point, if yeah, I may. Go ahead. So the Mishnah, and we have a class at Torah Resource. Uh, I don't know if Lee's still in the chat room, but Lee could, yep. could, uh, took class, did a great, awesome paper for the class. Um, way to go, Lee. Uh, so if anybody wants to dive into that, um, we'll have that available, Lord willing. But just in a nutshell, the Mishnah, we have two different basic commentaries on the Mishnah. One is the Babylonian Talmud. One is the Jerusalem Talmud. And they don't always agree on the Mishnah. They don't even always agree on the wording of the Mishnah. Sometimes they don't understand. They, they talk about, we're not sure what this even means. So there is an element of uh, what do we do with this? It's authoritative, but we're, you know, what do we do with it moving forward? That was all just a little footnote on, on that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is the final question that, that Stephen writes in and, and, uh, I think this is a good one and maybe this will actually bring some more conversation and some more emails and, or, uh, you know, uh, phone messages. Um, and maybe even Stephen will write with some more questions on this. He says this, he says, didn't all Torah in the Tanakh, Start off as oral. God to Moses, to Aaron, to Aaron's two sons, to the 70 elders, to God's people. Would rabbis consider that Mishnah? No. No, no here's here's the core. It, it's a really good point. Um, because certainly there's things that, that like we learn that, uh, you know, Moses writes about Abraham, right? So, so there's stuff we don't know. Right. Uh, and obviously you're right to point out uh, Moses narrates a lot of things after the fact where he's saying, you know, and then the Lord, you know, said this and then I did this. But the point of oral Torah in classical rabbinic Judaism. So we're talking the, Mish, the, the Babylonian Talmud primarily is that God gave two Torahs at Mount Sinai, right. two Torahs, one in writing and one orally. And that if you just have the written Torah, you're never going to be able to understand it. You have to have the written and the oral. And your access to the oral Torah is not to go buy another book, but to go study under the legitimate rabbis who trace their lineage generation to generation all the way back to Moses. Uh, And that's the myth. That's the rabbinic myth of two Torahs. Now, it comes on the heels of statements like Paul that says, you can read the Torah all you want, but until you turn to the Lord, until you turn to Messiah, you're going to misread it. So Paul actually has already made a similar kind of argument about inability of someone to understand the scriptures. We see it in Acts, too. Remember, we see uh, the, the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading Isaiah 53. Right. And the Lord in the spirit 
brings Philip to him. And, and he says, how can I understand it? What, who's he talking about? So, so when the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, he, because God gave his word in human language, it's in the world. And, a, and an Ethiopian eunuch can read the text, but it doesn't solve the problem of saying, how do I make sense of this? Who's he talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? And then Philip comes and shares the gospel, etc. And we know the story. So the rabbinic idea of oral Torah, as Caleb mentioned earlier, we have to understand is kind of take some of these, these things that were actually already in the world and tries to strategize around them. If you are a believer in, in Jesus, in Yeshua, however you want to classify that, if you believe that he is the living God who come in human flesh to die on the cross, then here's my advice to you. Don't pick up the Mishnah or the Talmud and just try to study it. In fact, what I would say is pick up your scriptures, memorize your scriptures. When you have all 66 books of scripture memorized, then dive into the Talmud or the Mishnah. Okay, <laughs> And the reason why is because the, these books are not ca- canonical in any way. They're not sanctioned by God. They're not, there's so much m- false information in them. And uh, they should be treated as historical books, and that's it. And that's why you've got to remember why Yeshua came at the exact time in history. The incarnation was precisely when the Father decided. Not a second before and not a second after. Precisely, like Paul says in Romans or Galatians four, I think, and when the fullness of time came, right, or Matthew one, right, Yeshua, son of David, son of Abraham, and he goes boom, 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 and why is because there's there was just the prime moment in God's wisdom and knowing all of history, this was the time, and one core teaching that Yeshua that is a mandate for us is we cannot conflate tradition with the traditions of man with the word of God, right? We are, we are to keep those separate. And that isn't, that's something we have to be on guard for. That takes an active and uh, active engagement with the revealed word of God, a constant active engagement, because what happens is as we humans like to get lazy and what do we do when we lazy, we create habits and those habits then are our traditions. Right. And then we start treating traditions as holy. And now our concept of holiness has, has shifted. We're out of calibration, right? right? It, we, we, it takes an active, and then this is back, back to the opening thing that, of course, you know, I didn't know we were talking about. But the pastors who are depending on a third-party source for their sermons is scary. You know, like you said, Caleb, you know, where's the Holy Spirit in this? But where's the where's the pastor's active engagement right. with the Word of God and yes. differentiating the Word of God for his own life, for his own self, let alone for the flock, for his own life, for his own marriage, for his own family? Right. Like, what is he importing stuff to help with his marriage? Like, is he? I mean, it's like where we have to be actively engaged in the Word of God and in prayer in all these fronts of our life, you know. All our relationships, our marriage, our family, our friends, and uh, our community. Active engagement, and it costs. Yeah, right. Because there's, it's we're talking. You know, it's just your time, and we're all dealing with limited time. Okay, we're going to change subjects, and we're going to change subjects uh, because I want to get to this last question. 
Um, but before I do, Scott, I got your question. We'll probably talk about that next week. I already mentioned that in the chat room, but uh, for those... Who, who is... Is this Scott that we're reading through right now? No. Nope. This who is, is Stephen. Stephen. Oh, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. I, I really liked these questions. My good friend, Stephen Loretti. He is a teacher and a trumpet player. Okay. We met him in... Uh, yeah, we met him in uh, New Jersey. Nice. <clears throat> you met him too. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Jake writes in. He says, hey, Robin, Caleb, I'm going to skip the uh, intro just because he says thank you. I have learned a lot about Calvinism from you guys. Before listening to the show, I would have defaulted against Calvinism just based upon my upbringing and what I have heard up to the point of listening, which is not much on the topic. But you have presented it very well and lead me to believe it is mostly correct with that being said. I have a question regarding receiving the gift of salvation based upon this quote from a commentary on the prologue of the Gospel of John. Quote, though we bring nothing to God and contribute nothing to our salvation, the gift itself is dependent on our willingness to receive it from the one who offers it. End quote. Nashville, Tennessee, blah, blah. Uh, he gives the, uh, the, the credentials of the book. What do you think about the, this idea of our willingness to receive? Does this fall into the Armenian way of thinking? Does our willingness have any effect on a reception of salvation? Or would you disagree with the latter part of the quote and say that we, <clears throat> pardon me, that we do not have a will to receive, therefore our reception of salvation is independent from our will. I will pass this to Robin just one second. I simply want to say this. <clears throat> Pardon me. This is actually one of the big debates between those who hold to Arminian theology and those who hold to a free will model. Um, I say that because those who hold to Arminian theology hold to the, the, the theology that is presented in the quote. And that is that we pr contribute they wouldn't say contribute, but that we uh, are, it's dependent on us receiving the gift that is offered to us. Those who hold to uh, Calvinism and or the doctrines of grace, however you want to say that, would say, no, that means that we contribute to our salvation. That means that our salvation is based on a work, and that work is the receiving of a gift offered to us. Our salvation is not based on a work. Rather, God is the one who softens the heart of the believer and God is the one who turns us to himself and that all are predestined from the foundation of the world. Rob, Yeah, go. this reminds me of uh, some young Mormon missionaries that came once to my door. Or I was out working in the yard and mowing the lawn or whatever, and they walked up. So, I, um, And we started talking about this, this issue. And they, this is what I, they told me. And these are guys that are like 18 years old and they're elders. Right. They said it's like this is this is the way to understand it, that there's a classroom of children and the teacher goes and puts a donut on each person's desk. Well, not everybody's going to eat the donut, but some people are going to eat the donut. So that's how they understood. That's how they were taught. That's the parable they were taught of understanding why. Why do some people believe in some people don't? It's just because some people don't want a donut. Uh, and I thought, oh, okay, so then there's a bunch of wasted donuts out there, right? There's a bunch of donuts, I guess. So, um, and I, I think that that picture that, th that those kids were, were teaching is similar to this Arminian. So the question is, receiving from God, 
Yeshua says also in John, John 3 to Nicodemus, unless you're born from above, you can't even see the kingdom. So that, so, and Paul in Galatians says, he, he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We don't cry, Abba, Father, until the spirit of the son is in our heart. That's why, you know, Yeshua said, you know, many will come to me on that day, say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, this? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. This is serious stuff. Paul says, no one can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the, so the idea is when is we have this concept of regeneration, whether it's a picture of, of new creation or new birth or resurrection, the idea of, of regeneration is, and wh- how does, what if we have a timeline, who, who's responsible for the regeneration? Well, to be born, it, back to the prologue to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, it says they were not born of the will of man, of the will of the flesh, right? right? But, but of God, they were born from God. So after the fact, we can look back and go, oh, I, 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 received, I received the gift of faith. And you would be accurate. You know, if you're a believer, then yes, you received it. But you're not the same person. You, you, you're, you're a, you have a new perspective on it now. And the proper framework for understanding your new creation self is not that you, that it's on your, that you did it, that you did something. So, it's that the father did something. So uh, two things. Uh, number one, uh, Gregory in the chat room says, makes a great point here. He says, we are given a will to believe, a, cha- a change in desire. R.C. Sprawl makes the point that if the ability to assent to faith would give you reason to boast over your neighbor who didn't choose. So in other words, if we have the ability to choose, that means that we've done something that would give us the ability to boast over the person who didn't choose. Right. And then, and then it becomes a amount of argumentation. The gospel is just an argument you need to win. I'll just, Caleb, you say you don't, you don't uh, choose. I'll just let me tell you, man, what you're missing out. You just need to choose. You need to choose. You need to choose. And then the other argument is, well, if God didn't make, give us free will, then we're just wrote. What, what are we just robots? Then they, then it goes into God just wants robots. Um, Brandon Von Bo in the chat room, obviously uh, batting for the Arminian team, says, look up Soteriology 101 YouTube channel, Dr. Leighton Flowers. Flowers, by the way, is, a, uh, I believe, if I'm thinking of the right flowers, uh, he is the ardent, he's an ardent Arminian. Um, and so his, <clears throat> his views are going to come from that, um, that. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong on this. I think Flowers is the one who wrote a book on Arminian theology, but I could be wrong on that. So don't. Please don't uh, quote me on that. Uh, but anyway, he says, look up uh, Soteriology 101 YouTube channel. Dr. Leighton Flowers does good work on the apparent discrepancies in Calvinism. Uh, provin- provincialism is his school of thought. Uh, yeah, I, I'm quite certain that uh, if you uh, look at Flowers' videos on Calvinism, you're going to get a very uh, specific view that Calvinism is in fact wrong. Um, and that's fine. There are many great believers out there who um, truly love the Lord and who truly 
uh, you know, who, who are truly doing great work for the kingdom, who also uh, are, are hold to Armenian theology. With that said, um, and I'm being told in the chat room, uh, Flowers is not an Armenian. He holds to prov- provincialism. Um, with all of that said, I, that's fine. And I, I stand corrected. Uh, but with that said, I still think that Flowers is coming from a, I've watched some of Flowers. I think that he's coming from a very specific viewpoint. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important actually to, to see all those viewpoints. I mean, the reason that I'm a, the reason that I hold to the doctrines of grace today, um, is because I was, I held Arminian theology and I was looking at what people were saying about the scriptures, diving into the scriptures. So I'm all for, um, I'm all for, you know, people seeing other points of view on this, um, and so, yeah, there you go. I hope that that answers the question. Do you think it answered the question? That's where we come from. I, I, I should say that. That's, our viewpoint is, is that no one has the ability to choose God. That God does the choosing first. And that he will turn the people. Um, and somebody else actually uh, a couple of shows ago said that, uh, who was it? Somebody, oh, Calvin believes in double, double predestination. I actually believe in double predestination to an extent. And what what is meant by double predestination is that God chose some people to um to go to be saved, to be uh, covenant members, and therefore he did not choose others. And I actually take it a little bit differently than that. What I take it to be is this that that human uh humankind uh has sinned and that every person, every single human deserves eternal punishment. Every single human does, um, and that God's That's the T of to, uh, total yeah, depravity. Total depravity that everyone ha- that everyone not only uh, not that everyone literally deserves that that we all deserve to to uh, have eternal punishment. That means forever, and even that is yeah. So uh, the holiness of God, I think, uh, is is so infinite that uh, our our uh, sin against him deserves eternal punishment. With that said, he, God's grace, overwhelming, eternal, in, infinite grace is shown through the fact that he has saved even one person. Is, it shows infinite grace. But the fact is, is that he's saved many. And so... Um, There's a good passage in Romans 6, or Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 6. Uh, for the this is NASB for the mindset on the flesh is death, mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Those in, who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, if we're looking at, you know, John chapter one or three or Romans. The point is, what does it take to please God? Hebrews says, you know, without faith, you, you can't please God. So how do you how do you take someone who is in sin and darkness and tr- you try to convince them to trust God? It says it's not even able to be subject to the law of God. I I need to make a correction. I'm sorry. I I thought uh, I, uh, mea culpa, mea culpa. Uh, I I was mistaking flowers for Olson. And I apologize. Uh, I I I thought that uh, 
I was thinking of Roger Olson instead of uh, instead of Flowers. Mm. So I apologize. I was thinking of the wrong person, um, and that's why I said that he was a uh, he was coming from a uh, Armenian uh, perspective. That is not true. Uh, Flowers is different. I have watched Flowers though. Um, actually, I now I'm putting the dots together. The way that I know Flowers is because I follow him on Twitter. Or at least uh, I did, or somebody has linked Soteriology 101. So I've I've watched some of his stuff, but um, yeah, I was I was mistaking Olson and Flowers, so I apologize. Okay, um, it's been a fun day, a fun day, a fun show. Anything else you want to say before we go, Rob? Yeah, are you born from above? When you you know right now walking around in your world, right, and being who you are, are you a new creation in Christ? Are you a new creation in Messiah Yeshua? That's what matters, you know, and arguing about, you know, we can get into an intellectual mode of like how you came to be this way, you know, did I do this because I decided, or is this something that is just a gift that, that I have, that I have received indeed, but that is like someone turned on the lights for me, you know, I was in darkness and someone turned on the lights. Uh, so, so uh, hang on just a sec. Uh, I got to respond to this. Scott in the chat room says, whether Calvinism is the way God works or not, we will never know until he tells us that I disagree with fully. And Lee comes in and says, Ephesians one and two says we can know exactly. We know that we are saved. We have assurance that we are saved God, through the promise of God in the scriptures. We are told that if we believe in the name of Christ and we confess with our mouth, we are saved. We have assurance. Now, he goes on and says, however, the Bible is clear that we should operate in a way that we do make choices for him. That I agree with. So so we need to operate as if... So that's a sanctification process exactly. that we're talking about. Yeah. But the Ephesians 1 is a great passage to to bring up. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's this the picture of predestination of like, you know, from the foundation of the world. That's where your confidence comes from. You know, this is... I think that there, within the Torah movement at large, there has been multiple teachers who have taught this idea that we don't know if we're saved. And that, that clip, saved, saved, we, that comes from one of those people. The fact is, is that the, the teachers who are teaching you that you don't know, you can't know that you're saved until you see the Father or until Judgment Day, wrong. That is incorrect. That is not biblical. That is not what the scriptures tell us. We have assurance that we are saved. All right. I'm going to leave it there because I think that that's a good note to leave on. Uh, we will be back next week, and uh, I don't know what we're going to talk about. So make sure to uh, send us all the emails that you possibly can. See HagatorResource.com. Give us, a, um, give us a, a shout on our comment line. And, uh, yeah, we hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.